If we were to go around the room this morning and just ask you what God is like, I'm sure the views could vary greatly. Um, hopefully you haven't come to your conclusions like what we see in movies. Although if you did, you'd have to admit that Morgan Freeman has the most godlike voice, right? But uh, our views of God come from different places. You know, sometimes it's um, what we've been taught, it's what we've read. Maybe it's through life's experiences, what people have said to us. So they can vary greatly. Um, it was about three years ago, I was looking online and came across um, something that said they were offering for people to take a ride at the Indianapolis 500 at the Motor Speedway in an Indy car. And that's something um, I've just always wanted to do. I grew up following the Indianapolis 500 and thought, man, this would be the coolest thing in the world. And it was in a two-seater Indy car, so you had a professional driver, you'd sit behind him, they'd take you around the track. But then as I was reading, it got better because they also guaranteed you that you would go over 200 miles per hour. Now, I knew they gave rides around the track in this Indy car, but never before had they offered to take you over 200 miles per hour on a ride around the track. But then I kept reading, and it got even better, because I found out that the professional driver who was going to take me around the track if I did this would be Mario Andretti. Well. As a boy, I grew up following the Indianapolis 500. It was like the biggest race in the world seemed that way back then. Now, it's changed a lot since then, but when I was growing up, it was like everything. The whole month of May was just focused on the Indianapolis 500. And believe it or not, my favorite driver as a kid growing up was Mario Andretti. So when I realized that I could take a ride, go over 200 miles an hour with Mario Andretti driving, even though he was in his 70s by now, I said, I am in. You know, this is like bucket lists. This is something I dreamed about. So on Memorial Day of 2016, I found myself in the pits at the Indianapolis 500, putting on a driver's suit, a racing suit, standing next to an Indy car, Mario Andretti on the other side, and I was about to take the ride of my life. And now some of you, I don't think, have ever seen me do that. It was a three-lap ride around the track, and I, I've showed it before, but another of you may not have seen it, so I'm going to show you just one lap. This is actually me in the car, the Indy car, so you can see what it was like. Check this out. That was the coolest thing. My wife got to go along and watch this, and she was in the pits when I got back from um, going around there, and I climbed out of the car. My first words to her were this, I cannot believe they do that for 500 miles. Yeah, I mean, I had new respect for these guys. I couldn't even hold my head up straight when we were going through the turns. And they do this for 500 miles, going well over 200 miles an hour in traffic. It, it was amazing. And what was even cooler about it was afterwards, we got to meet Mario Andretti. We got to talk with him. We got our picture taken with him. And then they had this reception where we could interact with him. We could ask him questions about his career. It was just like, you know, one of the best days of my life to be able to do that. Well, before I had heard of Mario Andretti, but that day I got to meet him in person, and I gained a different perception of him once I got, him, got to meet him in person. So what were some of my impressions? Well, the first impression was this. He's not a very big guy. 
He's actually rather small. I have my picture taken with him. Check this out. This is um, what it looked like when my picture was taken with him. Yeah, I, I'm not seven feet tall, okay? And that probably served him really well when he was racing because he was such a small guy. And by the way, just before we take this picture down, would you just please note that he signed it to Jerry? Would you check that out? Yeah, there we go. All right, so we can move on now. Another impression I had is this. Um, he was just a really down-to-earth, ordinary guy. Now, now, I want you to think about this. There was a time where some people would have considered him the greatest race car driver in the world. He's the only guy that actually won the Indianapolis 500, the Daytona 500, and a Formula One championship. And here I was talking to this guy, and he was very humble. He was unassuming. He just seemed like a guy you'd want to hang out with. You know, he was just somebody's husband, somebody's father, somebody's grandfather. So I walked away from that day with a different perception than I had before that, when I actually got to meet him. My perception of him actually changed that day for the better. And you know, sometimes perception can be different from reality, especially when it comes to people and when you meet them and you get to know them one-on-one. And hopefully, once you get to meet them one-on-one, your perception becomes better than what you thought it had been. And you know, that can be true with God too. Sometimes we have this view of God But once we get to know him, get to know him better, that can change. And we want to look today at what God is like. And I'm hoping that your view of God, when we do that, will change for the better. And here's why this is so important. Because my view of God determines how I live. Let me repeat that. My view of God determines how I live. So... My view of God determines the decisions I make in life. My view of God determines how I spend my time. My view of God determines how I treat other people. And even if you don't believe in God, that is a view of God. That's going to determine how you live your life. It'll determine how you spend your money. It will determine what's important to you in life. It'll determine how you process and handle problems in your life. It'll determine what your purpose in life is. And, you know, different people have different perceptions of God, and they've come up with those through the years from different ways. But, you know, some people may perceive God like a police officer who's just hiding in the bushes, just waiting to pull you over, you know. He's going to walk up to the car and say, you just made my day, you know. And so when they view God that way, they just think God is out to get them if they just slip up at all. Now think about that. If that's your view of God, you're not going to have a much of a relationship with God, are you? It's going to be very distant at the best. And you're probably just going to say, you know, if that's what God is like, no thanks. And if you do go to church and have that view, you're probably only going because you feel obligated or you feel guilty. Some people may view God more like a grandfather, very loving, very kind, you know, maybe not all that powerful to change what's going on in your life, maybe not even aware of what's happening in your life. And, you know, he just, if you do something that uh, you shouldn't do, he's going to turn his back. He's just going to overlook it. There really aren't consequences. After all, he's grandpa, you know. The problem is if you have that view of God, then maybe you don't have a balanced view and you don't understand that he is a just God, and sometimes there are consequences to our decisions. Well, or, or maybe some people view God more like a mechanic. God's just there to fix everything in my life. So, you know, I, I pretty well run my life the way I want, but 
If I get into trouble or if I have a problem, then I pray and God will just make it all right. And of course, the problem with a view like that is when you do have a problem and you do pray about it, if things don't turn out the way you want or he doesn't fix it the way you want, then you can become frustrated, even disillusioned with God, and you may end up saying no thanks, and you'll say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to live my life the way I want. Because your view of God does determine how you live. And so it's important for us to have the right view of God, to understand what he's really like. So today, I hope when we leave here, we have a better view of what God is like. And what we may do today may stretch you a little bit in terms of your view of God, but we need to be able to see God in totality and understand what he is indeed really like. Now, we're in the series we're calling Getaway, where we're looking at some of the story of the nation of Israel from the book of Exodus. And we know they were enslaved in Egypt, and what this is about is how God led them out of Egypt. The Exodus, in other words. And much of what we're looking at is how God interacts with the nation of Israel, how God interacts with a guy by the name of Moses, who led the nation of Israel. And even, and especially today, how God interacts with the king of Egypt called Pharaoh. And what's fascinating, where we come to the story today, Moses is probably about 80 years old now. We showed you last week that you can kind of divide his life into three 40-year periods. The first 40 years, he spent growing up in the palace of Egypt. He was adopted, even though he was a Hebrew, even though he's from the nation of Israel, he was adopted by the king of Egypt. So he grew up in the palace, but because he was Hebrew he, and the nation of Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one day. He became angry, lost his cool. And he killed the Egyptians, so he had to run for his life. So when he was about 40 years old, he had to flee Egypt. He was gone for 40 years. And last week we saw how God called Moses to go back to Egypt and lead the nation out of Egypt, even though um, Moses was very reluctant to do so. So now, the point we're coming to in his life today, he's about 80 years old. He's probably back in the palace of Egypt. He's ready to confront the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And what makes this so intriguing is this. It's very possible that the guy who was now the king of Egypt is a guy he grew up with. He grew up in the palace. Pharaoh probably had other sons. They may have grown up together almost like stepbrothers. And now Moses is 80. This guy is now the king in Egypt. So he's going in to confront Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This may be a guy who he grew up eating breakfast with. He grew up going to school with this guy. They grew up playing video games together. And here he is standing in front of this king to confront him. So what's going to happen? Moses' brother Aaron is with him. They're going to go in to the king and say, you need to let my people go, our people go, that you've enslaved. How's it going to go for Moses and Aaron? Let's read about it. This is Exodus chapter 5. And here's how it went. After this, presentation to Israel's leaders. Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so? Retorted Pharaoh. And who is the Lord? And why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he may kill us with a plague or with a sword. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their task? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. Well, I guess it's safe to say that that didn't go as planned, right? I mean, we saw last week, if you were here, that uh, God had refuted every excuse Moses had as to why Moses shouldn't lead the Hebrew people. And one thing he kept telling Moses is, I am God, I am powerful. And he showed him all, Moses all these incredible supernatural things he could do. So I'm guessing when Moses went in to talk to Pharaoh, he was thinking something like this. Okay, I'll go into Pharaoh and I'll say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going to respond this way. Oh, wow, you're Moses, aren't you? Of course you can go out for three, not, not just three days, take a full week off and, you know, would it be okay if I catered your meals for you? That's not what happened at all. Instead, Pharaoh says, get back to work. You know, don't look at me that way, Moses. You know, don't cry about it or I'll give you something to cry about. And he did and they did. Pharaoh did give them something to cry about and they cried about it. And that's actually the rest of chapter 5 in Exodus. Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew people who were already making bricks, that was their task as slaves, to now have to gather their own straw to make these bricks. Up to this point, the Egyptians had provided them with straw. Now, they would have to make their own straw. So they had to meet the same quotas, make the same number of bricks, or they would be beaten for this, even though they didn't have the workforce to gather the straw and make the same number of bricks. At this point, the people complained to Moses and Aaron, and they were angry at Moses and Aaron. So what's the conclusion? Well, for Moses and Aaron, and even the nation of Israel, the situation, it seems like, when God intervened, has gone from bad to worse. And you know, how does that compute? And let me ask you, have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, they did. If so, you can relate to Moses. Many years ago, I was flying to Budapest, Hungary. I had a nonstop flight from Cincinnati to Frankfurt, where I would connect on into Budapest. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I was to catch a Sunday evening flight. I would fly overnight, arrive in Budapest on Monday afternoon. Then I was going to start teaching at a Bible school on Tuesday morning. Now, there was only one international flight per day from Cincinnati to Frankfurt, so I had to catch that one on Sunday in order to arrive on Monday in order to teach on Tuesday. If I missed the Sunday flight, the next flight out was on Monday night, and I wouldn't arrive till Wednesday, and I was going to be late for teaching. So, Sunday afternoon, I left home with plenty of time to allow myself to get to the airport, like four hours, just to make sure I wouldn't be rushed. And I Went over to Greensburg, I got on I-74, the interstate there, and headed to Cincy. When I got close to the Ohio border, traffic was stopped. It had come to a screeching halt. No problem, I'd allowed tons of extra time, plenty of time. But we sat there, and we didn't move. And this was the day before cell phones and GPS, so I couldn't really 
check it out, see what was going on, reroute, and so on. But I still have plenty of time. So even though we sat there for an hour and didn't move, I wasn't too worried until I realized something. Daylight savings time was that very day. Now, in Indiana at that time, we didn't change times. So I wasn't even thinking about it. But as I was sitting there, it dawned on me, wait a minute, they changed time in Cincinnati today. They were now an hour ahead of us, so I, now I had lost another hour. Things had just gone from bad to worse. Well, when the traffic started moving again, I knew that I could make my flight just barely if nothing else went wrong. Um, come to find out there had been a traffic accident, and that's what had backed traffic up. So I frantically drove to the airport. I might have even driven just a little bit over the speed limit to get there. But, you know, I was going to teach the Bible school in Hungary. So God was going to make sure I wouldn't get pulled over, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, I know what you're thinking. You got pulled over, right, Jerry? No, I, I didn't, all right? It, so that part of the story didn't go from bad to worse. But when I got to the airport, the shuttle was running late. I got up to the counter to get checked in. And the lady checking me in was exceedingly slow, in spite of my pleas that I had an international flight to catch. So yes, things went from bad to worse and got worser. So long story short, I made my flight, but barely. Be I was literally running through the airport when I got to the area where I was to get on, where I was to board. They were just ready to close the doors. I just barely made it. Now, for situations like that, will it go from bad to worse? We might say, well, it's luck, it's fate, you know, it's just whatever happens. But what happens when we feel like we are trying to live? our lives the way that would be pleasing to God, and then things go from bad to worse. Now, that can be very disillusioning. God, I surrender my life to Jesus, but my marriage isn't improving. God, I started giving 10% of my income to you, and the car broke down, and the washing machine broke. Really? God, I broke off that relationship that was pulling me away from you, but you have no idea how lonely I feel now, and there don't seem to be any prospects. God, I've changed my priorities. I've made my family a priority. I feel like I finally have my life in order, and then I get cancer. And that's how Moses felt. He did everything God wanted him to do reluctantly, and it goes from bad to worse. Look at what he says to God. This is Exodus 5 again, and it says this, Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done nothing to rescue them. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've asked God the why question. Now, there's a principle here for us to know, and we actually see this throughout the Bible, so it shouldn't surprise us because we see this happen so many times in the Bible that there may be times where our situation goes from bad to worse, and it's this. First principle, God's ways are different than our ways. We just need to know that. In fact, there's a place in the Bible, it's in Isaiah 55, that actually says almost those very words. God is God. He has the big picture. We don't. 
So we often don't see what he's doing in life. But from the experiences of those who have gone before us, like we read about over and over again in the Bible, like we read about with a guy by the name of Moses, they teach us that we can see things differently. We're going to find out when we read the rest of the story that God has a purpose in all this. And by the way, if we were to read God's answer to Moses' why question, he doesn't really give him an explanation, which is very common too. Instead, what he says, what God says to Moses, five times as he says, I am and I will. And let me show you what I mean by that. So here we are in Exodus 6, and this is God speaking. And he says, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. In other words, he's saying, I am the Lord, so trust me. And he says, I will do this. In other words, trust my plan. You know, you don't learn to trust God when life goes smooth and easy, do you? You learn to trust God when things go from bad to worse, to be honest with you. And Moses and the nation of Israel desperately needed to learn that principle because of what lied ahead of them. God was using this situation to grow their faith because of what was coming. And you know, he can do the same thing for you. And so understand this, when things go from bad to worse, it's an opportunity to strengthen your faith. And what happens next in chapter 7 through 11 of Exodus is fascinating to read, but honestly, it's a little bit disturbing to read too. And we're not going to take the time to read all of that this morning, but I would encourage you to read it on your own. In fact, if you are doing the Ridge Reading Challenge starting next week, later in next week, you're going to start reading the book of Exodus a chapter at a time, so you'll be able to read along with what we're focusing here on Sunday morning. And what you would read in Exodus 7 to 11 is that there are a series of 10 plagues, as they're called, to show Pharaoh that God is the one who's in control. God brings on these series of plagues or judgments on the nation of Egypt so that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, would realize that the God of Israel, Yahweh, as he's called, is the one true God. Pharaoh is not. And here's how it's described in Exodus 3, 19 and 20. This is God talking to Moses. It says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last, he will let you go. Those are the 10 plagues he's going to bring about. In your notes are a list of those 10 plagues. We won't take the time to go through all of them, but you can see what those different plagues were. Each of these plagues struck at the heart of Egypt, perhaps even the gods of Egypt. You see, in Egypt, they had many gods. So for example, the very first plague where the Nile River turned to blood there was an Egyptian god of the Nile. So each plague systematically showed that the god of Israel, Yahweh, is superior to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. But in spite of this, Pharaoh wouldn't listen. 
He was incredibly arrogant and stubborn. And it took 10 plagues before finally he would give in and free the people of Israel. You know, it didn't have to be that way. But Pharaoh thought, I'm the most powerful man in the world. No one's going to tell me what to do, especially not the so-called God of Israel. So it became a power struggle. His pride and ego was at stake now. So even though throughout these 10 plagues, Pharaoh had chance after chance, warning after warning, he wouldn't budge. Can you imagine looking at some of these plagues, what it would have been like to live through this? There were swarms of frogs, gnats, flies, locusts. Watch this scene from the movie God and Kings, and it shows us what it might have been like. And finally, after not one, not two, but ten plagues, Pharaoh gave in. Again, this did not have to happen, but Pharaoh's pride would not let him give in. And sometimes we can read parts of the Bible like this one, and it's hard for us to understand. This is the judgment of God. And it doesn't always necessarily compute with our concept of God. But again, we need to understand we cannot put God in a box. Accounts like this in the Bible give us a better understanding of who God is, what his character's like, and we need to have a balanced view of God. And there's a lesson in this for us as well, and it's this. God is often different than we think. God is often different than we think. And so because God is different than we think, let me explain to you what that means. Let me give you um, some ways in which God's characters, we, we see his character revealed in this account in Exodus. The first one is this. We learn that God is in control, complete control. That's true of a powerful nation like Egypt. He can even use a nation to accomplish his purposes. And, you know, that's true in all our lives as well. When we let our own pride get in the way and refuse to surrender to God, we ultimately find out that he is in control. Next, we learn that God is just. Another way to say that is that God will always do what's right. God will do what is fair. Now, he may not do that in our timing, in our way, but he does not overlook evil and wrong. His way of dealing with it might be different than ours. And like we said, it may be, the timing may be different but he'll always do what was right. In this case, because Pharaoh was so stubborn, Pharaoh had to suffer the full extent of God's judgment. Third thing is this, God is patient. He is so very patient. We might ask, how could God do this 10 times? Were 10 plagues really necessary? You know, the real question might be, how could God be so patient as to give Pharaoh 10 opportunities to repent? He gave Pharaoh opportunity after opportunity 10 different times because there were 10 different plagues. The, the way it would work is after a plague would come on them, Pharaoh would cry out for mercy so the plague would end. God would be merciful. And so Moses would go to Pharaoh again and he would say, hey, repent, Pharaoh, let my people go. But then... 
With the plague gone, Pharaoh would harden his heart again and he would refuse. God is just as patient with each of us. How many times do we choose to go our own way, to do life our way, and yet God patiently shows mercy to us when we turn back to him? And then finally, God is loving. Another way of saying this is this. He always makes a way out for us. At every point along the way, Pharaoh could have repented, and God would have forgiven. And that's true with us too. Here's the big picture. God is working his plan through Pharaoh and Egypt to rescue his people, the nation of Israel, to save them. It appears like the situation's going from bad to worse because they can't see the end of the story and what's going to happen. And it's important for us to understand what God is like. Because remember what we said? What God is like determines how we live. So if you believe God is in control, then you'll learn to trust him when you're going through problems. If you believe ultimately that he's in control, then you're going to make decisions in your life in a way that would be pleasing to him. If you believe he loves you, then you're going to want to find your purpose in life by serving him because he wants what's best for you. You see, all these characteristics of God that we've talked about today at the cross where he saved us, where he rescued us. When Jesus died on the cross, it showed that God was in control. That the plan that had been in place from the very first time that man had sinned, God was working it out. It also satisfied the justice of God. Sin had to be punished. It couldn't be overlooked. The penalty for sin is death. So Jesus became our substitute to pay for our sin when he went to the cross so that God could extend forgiveness to us. The justice of God was satisfied by Jesus dying for us. But when Jesus died for us, it also shows God's love for us because he did that. So we ask each of us to decide, do I want to humbly surrender control of my life and rely on him for what he's done for me? And because God is so loving and so patient, he allows us to make that decision on our own and gives us opportunity after opportunity. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, don't wait. You can even make that decision in your heart today. You can make that decision to tell him that in your heart as I close in prayer. Now, next week, we're going to see an incredible picture of what I'm talking about here to conclude this morning, right in this story with the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 12. So stay tuned. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are God. And certainly there are always times where we wonder why you do things like you do. And because we don't have the big picture, we don't always understand. But when we come back to what we know, that you're in control, that you're just, that you're patient, that you're loving, then we know that we can surrender our lives, we can turn over our lives, we can trust you with our lives. And so we're so thankful for the kind of God you are. We thank you that you sent Jesus into our world to rescue us, to save us from our sin. And because of your patience toward us, when we make that decision to surrender our lives to you and to trust in what Jesus has done for us, we can have forgiveness, we can have relationship with you, which gives us purpose in this life. We can have the promise of eternal life. And we just pause and thank you this morning for who you are. 
And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.